Hanukon. 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 You're listening to Hanukon Podcast, highlighting citizen Potawatomi Nation issues, members, and more. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. Just search Hanukon Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Paige Willett. During this episode, we'll hear about services House of Hope offers to domestic violence victims, take a look at what's growing in the community garden, and get a history lesson about tribal self-governance. 92% of women killed by men in 2017 were killed by someone they knew, according to a study released by the Violence Policy Center. The most recent report, released in September 2019, analyzes data from 2017. Native American women experience domestic violence at a higher rate than any other race. Citizen Potawatomi Nation's House of Hope offers resources and shelter to any individual experiencing domestic violence, stalking, sexual abuse, or intimate partner violence. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and House of Hope's advocate Kayla Woody offered her thoughts and experience working with victims. Thanks for joining me. Of course, thank you. So what is important that people should know about domestic violence here in Oklahoma? Well, domestic violence is definitely becoming an epidemic, not only in Oklahoma, but around the nation. One in four women and one in nine men will experience domestic violence in their lifetime. So this is something that we definitely want to get information out about so that we can put a stop to. So how far does House of Hope reach and what kind of services does House of Hope offer to domestic violence victims? Of course, that's a great question. Um, House of Hope, of course, since we are tribally owned, we do assist tribal members, but we also assist non-tribal members. And we reach to five different counties in Oklahoma. Those counties include Pottawatomie County, Lincoln, Cleveland, Oklahoma, and Seminole. We also have a variety of resources for anyone struggling with domestic violence, stalking, or sexual assault. We can provide safety planning to those trying to get out of a situation. Um, We can also provide court advocacy for someone who may be unfamiliar with a courtroom or has anxiety about the courtroom. We can also provide assistance to those who are needing help with rent and utilities. And we also provide parenting classes for those who have maybe been demanded by the court to take them. All of our resources are completely free to our clients. We're there to help anyone who needs it. Oklahoma is one of the worst states in the country for domestic violence deaths. In your experience, what kind of outreach needs to be done to stop domestic violence before it starts? I believe that the most important thing for us to do as a state is to start educating our youth on domestic violence and healthy relationships. Domestic violence is a cycle that starts with our youth. When a child is placed in an abusive home where either mom is being abused by dad um, or vice versa, they have a tendency as they grow older to continue that cycle and either one, be abusive to their partner 
or two, choose a partner that's abusive to them because they do not have the knowledge of what a healthy relationship is. So we really want to come in um, and teach these children what to look for in a partner, that they have certain rights as a human being, and just really how to be happy in a relationship. And Oklahoma is one of the only states in the nation that doesn't have strict laws against people with felonies and uh, misdemeanors when it comes to firearms. We really want to try to push a change in this state to make it more difficult for someone who has a domestic violence charge against them to obtain a firearm. And of course, just getting out information to all of our communities about what domestic violence is, what it looks like, and what they need to do if they see this in the community, who they can contact, and what they can do to help this person. What are some things about domestic violence then that people might not know? Domestic violence is not always shown with physical bruises um, or injuries. Domestic violence can be mental. It can be financial. There's a lot of factors to domestic violence that most people, if not paying attention, might not recognize. So we want to get the information out there to our communities on specific things to look for. Most of the time, a perpetrator is going to try to block any type of contact, either their family, friends, or coworkers. He or she wants to isolate their victim to make it easier to really hold that control over them. So we want to really show those signs to people so when they see them, they can recognize them and try to contact law enforcement or an organization like ourselves to try to reach out to those victims. What can anyone do to help anyone that they see in a situation like this? What are some basic ways to help people who are being abused? I'm so glad you asked that. I think that there is a stigma in this state about domestic violence. People tend to think it's not their business because it happens a lot of times behind closed doors or it's not happening to them. So they really try to push it out of their minds. Um, So what we really want to do is to try to change the views of our communities and really just have them look at it as it is my business. If they see someone being abused, whether it be in the parking lot, the grocery store, maybe you hear it from the apartment next to you please contact your local police department. If abuse is happening, they will respond quickly and they'll be able to help that person. Of course, if you know someone who maybe needs to leave an abusive relationship but is scared to do so, you can provide them with our contact information and we would be happy to provide them with safety planning to get them out of that situation and into a more safe residency. As an organization, specifically a tribal one, what makes House of Hope special? I love working for the tribe. I think there are so many wonderful organizations within the tribe. But being with House of Hope, I get to help someone escape something that has been 
held over them for so long and to get to see the smile on their face when they have just a moment of peace. It's an absolutely wonderful experience. So I think House of Hope is such a special organization because they stop what they're doing to really help these victims or really how we like to say it, survivors of domestic violence or sexual assault. And we get to change people's lives every single day. It's an honor to be able to help, you know, these men and women escape such hard times. If a victim calls or comes to House of Hope, what does that process look like as sort of an evaluation of of the situation that they're in? Of course, yes. The number one priority that we have for any victim is to make sure that they are safe. We want to get them to a safe place and away from anyone who is trying to harm them. So that is our number one responsibility as House of Hope. Once we have them safe, our next steps is to really see what resources that we can help them with. If we're providing emergency shelter to these victims, that's normally a 30 to 45 day period for them. Our next step is really to try to find them permanent residency and then also to help them, you know, if they do not already currently have employment, to find that to support themselves and if they do have children, to help them with any needs of that matter. House of Hope is on the web at cpnhouseofhope.com and on Facebook at Citizen Potawatomi Nation House of Hope. They can also be reached by phone at 405-275-3176. Their 24-7 crisis line is 405-878-4673. or Community Garden, near the CPN Cultural Heritage Center, boasts bountiful harvests each season. The plants that claim fall as their natural harvesting period have helped Potawatomi live through the cold winter months for a millennium, rounding out a healthy diet and acting as natural medicines. Now we've put uh, our cover crops in, and um, right now we're standing in front of our yellow pear tomatoes. Um, there's a one right here. Tasty. Still good. And Collecting food to last the next several months begins early. Potawatomi harvest minomen, or wild rice, in September as a major winter staple. The month is named Minomnuk Gizis, or the wild ricing moon. As the Great Lakes people, Anishinaabe sustain themselves on the rice that grows in the region's shallow ponds, waterways, and shores. Community Garden Assistant Kaya Deerenwater said a family used to collect 300 to 400 pounds of wild rice for the winter. By sweeping the stems into a canoe, some of the rice sinks back to the bottom of the water and replants itself. Wild rice does its thing on the lakes and rivers, and as long as we make sure we are harvesting in a sustainable way, and our ancestors knew how to do that, um, and the people who do harvest rice now, continue those traditions, um, and I'm thankful for that. We don't have to do anything during the growing season. It it just grows itself. Fall vegetables and crops that require more tending include the four sisters, corn, beans, squash, and sunflowers. This year, deer and water structured a polyculture bed filled with their seeds. As a basic technique of indigenous agriculture, plants such as the four sisters that cohabitate well and enrich one another are grown together. They feed each other and sustain a healthy topsoil. The corn provides structure for the squash and the beans. 
and the squash in turn creeps along the ground protecting the ground from moisture loss as well as covering the ground from weeds then the sunflowers are also spiky like the squash leaves that kind of forms a natural living fence and pollination services Polycultures like the bed deer and water main reflect a respect for nature and the land. Modern commercial agriculture yields mass production as a sign of success, while indigenous methods focus on long-term sustainability. Three Sisters is a ingenious system. It is a complete system in and of itself, and one that I think incorporates a lot of values of indigenous societies just in the way that it's efficient but not overly efficient and it's all about balance and you're balancing your nutrition you're balancing your plant structures your ecology the environment the soil and everything is integrated together corn provides starches protein and sugars Beans are also full of protein, while squash offers carbohydrates as well as vitamins A and C. This year, Walpole whiteflower corn, Peshaw squash, sunchokes, and much more grew together. You could literally survive on corn, beans, squash, and sunflowers for, you know, six months when it's snowing and cold and you can't grow anything. If your hunt is bad or you're sick and can't go outside to gather nuts or anything like that, you could make it through the winter. The garden was stocked with several different kinds of beans, such as Potawatomi rabbit beans. They grow particularly well in Oklahoma, soaking up the sun and warmer temperatures that last through September. The beginning of October brought the first few cool days of the changing seasons, and deer and water was still collecting them for the winter. The small blue-gray peas come encased in a long, light green pod on a vine or bush. And you know they're ripe when you squeeze on the edges, and they make that cracking sound, the seam popping, but you also can tell they're ripe because they rattle inside their, um, in their case. And these ones are great. They're, that's a really big, long pod. There's about, what, 14 beans there or something? 12 maybe? This is just from last week's harvest, and it's maybe a third of a five-gallon bucket. So they are really great producers, prolific. And, you know, even though it's been cold, they're still going. Giving back and caring for the land allows it to provide the essentials to live through the frigid conditions, including natural medicines that keep metabolisms in order and help fight the flu and other sicknesses. While not traditionally harvested in the fall, Deer and Water recommends elderberries as one of the best remedies for feeling run down. Your kids are in school or work's crazy or whatever, and you're feeling like your immune system's taking a hit, that's when you make elderberry syrup or drink elderberry tea, and it will do wonders for you. It's a miracle plant because it is the only plant that will actually kill a virus. Plants, you know, work on bacteria, but viruses are different because they're not actually living. With yellow flowers and green leaves, goldenrod also has healing properties. Often mistakenly considered a weed, it commonly grows in prairies and meadows. Native Americans have used it to make golden-colored wintertime teas for hundreds of years by grinding young leaves and flowers to make an herb. 
it's a great decongestant. It's wonderful for when you have a runny nose, you have allergies, your head's all stuffy, you just can't get away from blowing your nose. That's when you want uh, goldenrod tea or goldenrod tincture. Um, personally, I like teas, making teas a lot more because it, they're easy. You just dry the herbs and then you drink your tea. <laughs> so, Potawatomi also subsist on nuts as part of a well-rounded wintertime diet. Indigenous people across the country continue to harvest them as an easily sustainable food source that lasts through the cold months and can be made into soups and flour. Butternuts, walnuts, hazelnuts, pecans, and hickory nuts all provide healthy fats and oils that are often missing. And those oils, you know, coat your stomach, and that's what your stomach lining's made of. That's what your neurons and your brain are all wrapped with. So having fat in your diet is really important, and our ancestors knew that, especially during wintertime when you're not getting the greatest nutrition because there's not a lot out there to eat. Surviving through the coldest temperatures of the year requires balance and hard work for Potawatomi hundreds of years ago and today. It's important to pass on the lessons of the fall growing and harvesting season for generations to come and keep the traditions alive. That's the way that uh, our ancestors ensured that we took care of the land and the land took care of us. Please research before growing, collecting, cooking, or using these items and be aware of pesticide usage. For more information about the community garden, join the Facebook group Gategemen CPN Community Garden or email chcgarden at potawatomi.org. It's time for learning language when CPN Language Department Director Justin Neely teaches songs, phrases, stories, and more. During this episode, he covers a social powwow dance song. Okay, the song that uh, we're going to sing is Mamwe Gada Mishkosman. And what it says is, uh, the, the, the lyrics, the first lyrics are, All Together We're Strong. This song originally came to us from, um, the tune is actually a very familiar uh, tune in Indian country. It's the AIM uh, theme song. And with the AIM song, it only has vocables. But a group of speakers, uh, Ojibwa speakers, actually put some lyrics to the song. And then we took those lyrics from Ojibwa and we changed them into Potawatomi. And the meaning behind the song is pretty powerful. The first verse that we start off with is called the lead. And we say that mamwe, mamwe means all together. Gadamishkosman means we're strong. So all together we're strong. And then we repeat that lyric again as a group when we come in together. Mamwe, Gadamishkosman, hail. Hey, ah, hey, oh, mom, way, Gadamish, Ghostman, hail, hey, ah, hey, oh, Noak, Skode, Gibodwe, Wat, which is the next line, and that Noak is seven, Skode, fire, Gibodwe, Wat, they've lit, and what the whole thing says is we've lit that seventh fire, and traditionally we have a, a seven fires prophecy. And that seventh fire is a time where we're supposed to pick up those things that have been left behind and try to carry on our traditions and our culture. And that's what that seventh fire is talking about. And then the next line says, Abduk Nishnabamyak. So we have to speak our language. Abduk Nishnabamyak. 
we have to speak our language. And then it and it says that twice, and then it says, Emenop Madzeak, Emenop Madzeak, so that we can live well or or have good health. Because when we talk about good life, that menop mods, when that good life, we're really not just talking about our physical well-being, but we're speaking of our mental and our psychological, I mean, our psychological, our mental, our emotional state, all of those things that make us who we are as Nishnabe people. So that menop mods, when that good life, is really for us as Indian people, as traditional people, it's having these things in our life, you know, knowing our stories, our songs, our language, having all these elements as part of who we are. For more information and opportunities with language, including self-paced classes, visit cpn.news backslash language. You can find an online dictionary at podwatomedictionary.com, as well as videos on YouTube. Just search CPN Haunakan. There are also Potawatomi courses on the language learning app, Memorize. Oklahoma recognized Indigenous Peoples Day in October for the first time this year. Following centuries of hardships through colonialism and treaty agreements with the United States, Native American tribes have strengthened their rights as sovereign nations in the last 50 years, particularly the right to govern themselves. Citizen Potawatomi Nation self-governance grants analyst Jeremy Arnett explains some of the history of tribal self-governance and its effect on services. The concept of self-governance is that you use the authority given to you in the law to operate programs directly instead of relying on the federal government to provide that service. And this is primarily done through funding agreements with the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Indian Health Service because uh, the lion's share of tribal support from the federal government comes through these two avenues. Uh, When you set up the compact structure, you agree to deliver whatever service is included in your compact, be that health care, tribal policing, tribal courts, Indian child welfare services, uh, social service assistance in general. There's a lot of just detailed, in-depth government stuff that must be done that is not efficiently done by the federal government, so we do it ourselves. But whatever you include in your compact, you, you have to carry it out. And you do that forever. And every assuming that the tribe 
decides to have a multi-year funding agreement every certain number of years you renegotiate those terms but the right to negotiate those terms stays with you forever so you do a satisfactory job and the services you provide to your tribal members are in improved and the way that the check on the system is that if tribal members are not satisfied with your performance they have a direct way to change that by voting out the tribally um, elected leader. So individual Indians are much better served under the self-governance model because the leadership of their tribe has a direct responsibility and a direct consequence if they don't. There's a historical link between sovereignty and self-governance. When the U.S. government started the treaty-making process with tribes, uh, they made a lot of promises, and they basically made a commitment that they would take care of, of essentials, and they would provide certain benefits to tribes. All tribes got a different deal, and those benefits were never supposed to run out. And that sets up historically what we call now the trust responsibility. And the trust responsibility could cover any number of things to tribes individually, but now it sort of encompasses all of the responsibilities that the federal government has to Indian people. That didn't turn out the way that Indian country would have wanted it to in the early stages. The treaties were not upheld, so we get a lot of broken promises and um, a lot of paternalism that doesn't really satisfy the requirement. Even when we had federal partners historically with their hearts in the right place, we didn't always get the treatment that we needed or deserved. Prior to the treaty making, tribes had their own government structure, their own ways, and they went about their lives as a tribe in the way that they saw fit. So they, they were executing sovereignty that way. And the treaty sort of put a fence around that and then, then continued to shrink it, but also we exchange that for these trust obligations. The federal government can never really deliver service at the level that it commits to, to do. And that was true historically, and it was true in the modern era. Uh, it's still true today. That was apparent in the 70s. It was apparent to um, Nixon, and he signs into law ISDIA the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act of 1975. And that is the foundational structure that we built modern self-governance on. So it, it kind of sat there for a little while being underutilized. And in the 80s, the mid to late 80s, um, a newspaper called the Arizona Republic published a series of several articles that, that uh, were like an expose on how the treatment of Indian peoples by federal partners who were supposed to be sort of looking after these funds and programs was really poor. That money was being appropriated and delivered to BIA especially, and then those funds weren't actually making it out to Indian country to the people who were supposed to receive the benefit. And they caused a legislative reaction and we got the tribal self-governance demonstration projects out of that which those are 
how the funding agreements are sort of structured today starts with these pilot tribes who ran a, a limited-term project where they took all of the funds that would have been assigned to them in a, what's called a tribal share, and instead of relying on BIA to operate a program, they just did it themselves. So um, public safety and justice, tribal courts, tribal government, elections, all of the things you would think of that BIA would have oversight for, the tribes took. And now any tribe who meets the requirements and goes through the process can have the shares that were originally set up and delivered through the government agencies given to them directly instead. So this started around uh, the mid-90s for the Bureau of Indian Affairs and around the turn of the century for the Indian Health Service. Today, I think we can safely say that more than 50% of all federally recognized tribes exercise self-governance in some form or fashion. Throughout the years, CPN has seen a huge shift in the way that they do business and the way that they deliver services that has a lot of its roots in self-governance. Prior to self-governance, we had to wait for everything. Everything was delayed. Even if the service was eventually good, it took so long that by the time a service got rendered, we've moved on to some other solution because the chairman and Ms. Caps don't really have it in them to sit around and wait. Health is a pretty easy example in that you can show up at an Indian Health Service clinic that was supposed to serve CPN people and sit all day hoping for an opening. And if you didn't get one, then the advice from staff was just to come back and try again in the morning. And sometimes you'll hear the chairman give that example where that specifically happened to him when he was trying to get an appointment for a family member, I believe. And that was the line in the sand as far as health goes. Um, he knew that we could do a better job delivering those services if we just took that money and and started serving the people directly. And so that's what we did. All of our tribal services have gotten more efficient, and they serve us. They're tailored to CPN. So anytime there's an opportunity to expand self-governance, the nation generally is instructed to support that effort by tribal leadership. So we work at the national level to try to help that process move forward in whatever way we can. For more information, read an edition of the American Indian Law Review regarding the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act at cpn.news backslash self-gov or visit the Self-Governance Communication and Education Tribal Consortium at tribalselfgov.org. Hanukkah Podcast is produced and brought to you by Citizen Potawatomi Nation's Public Information Department. Our director is Jennifer Bell. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find what you listen to. We're also on Facebook at Citizen Potawatomi Nation and on Twitter at C underscore P underscore N. Visit us on the web and find digital editions of the tribal newspaper at Potawatomi.org. That's P-O-T-A. W-A-T-O-M-I dot org. Until next time, I'm Paige Willett. Miigwech nikanek, bamamina. Thank you, friends. See you later.